Mean Old Lion Media presents Corner Table Talk. Welcome to Corner Table Talk. I am your host, Brad Johnson. Here we explore subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. As always, with questions or comments about our show, you can reach me at brad at postandbeamhospitality.com. So the thing I've found that is an added bonus to the enjoyment I get from connecting with my guests each week those I've known personally, or in some cases knew of, is how much I learn about their journeys in preparing for each episode. I've had the good fortune through the restaurant business of meeting people from all walks of life, income, and education levels, often only recognizing a familiar face, brief conversations on the way to their table, or as I stop by to say hello when people moving through life drop by whatever restaurant I had for a drink and a bite to eat. Paula Madison, my guest today, is someone I've known and known of for many years. Quite simply, Paula is a powerhouse. Getting to know her better in preparing for today, I was, of course, impressed with the high level of success achieved over the course of her career. But what was most intriguing that I didn't see coming was what I learned watching a documentary Paula produced called Finding Samuel Lowe from Harlem to China, which traced the roots of her Chinese ancestry. And Paula and I will talk about that a little bit in a few minutes. The film airs on the Africa Channel, which is majority owned by Paula and her family through their Madison Media Management LLC, a Los Angeles-based media consultancy company. Paula is a journalist, writer, business person, executive, and a former NBC Universal executive. In 2011, Paula retired from NBC Universal, where she had been executive vice president of diversity, as well as vice president of General Electric, the parent company of NBCU. During her 22 years with NBCU, she held a number of successful leadership roles, including president and general manager of NBC4 Los Angeles, Los Angeles regional general manager of NBCU's Telemundo stations, and vice president and news director of NBC4. I don't know how she had time to do all that, but maybe we'll find out. In 2013, Mayor Eric Garcetti appointed Paula to the Los Angeles Police Commission, where she served as vice president until 2015. She is a dual citizen of the United States and Jamaica. Paula was named one of the 75 most powerful African-Americans in corporate America by Black Enterprise Magazine and is included in Hollywood Reporter's Power 100. Paula serves on several boards, including the Black Filmmaker Foundation, the Chinese American Museum of Los Angeles, the Center for Asian American Media Advisory Board, and the Advanced Journalism Studies, School of Global Journalism and Communication at Morgan State University, and the Advisory Board of the Hollywood Foreign Press. And that's not even the whole list, but we'll stop there because I'd like to talk to her live. <laughs> so Paula Madison, welcome to Corner Table Talk. Brad, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited to be with you. It has been years since I've seen you. And even though I'm seeing you just in a little box, I'm thrilled to kind of pretend that we are in the same room. So wonderful to see you, my brother. Yeah, same here. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate that. So we get things started here with short order questions, just a few things to get us rolling and, and shouldn't be too difficult for you. So Paula, tell me what is in heavy rotation on your playlist? What are you listening to? Wow. Um, well, what I'm always listening to is Prince. Let me just be clear about that. Um, what I'm frequently listening to is James Brown. 
and what I sort of mellow out and listen to when I'm wishing that I was in an age and a stage where I could get a groove on is uh, Bruno Mars. And then yesterday I was listening to Miles Davis. So Mm. there's a variety of stuff going on in there where I just like listening to music that takes me somewhere else. I'm with you on that. So when you when you listen to music, Paula, do you enjoy it differently in different spaces? Like I know I'm in my car and, you know, if I miles for me, like on a long drive, like the right miles track is just perfect. Or it, does, does it hit you? Music hit you that way, too? Well, it does. But let me be clear. I don't like long drives. My husband will tell you that uh, I am the worst person to have in the car on a long drive. I can't take it. I kind of figure that anything longer than a three hour drive, there must be a flight to get me there, (laughs) right? And so I like to listen to music that's going to, you know, be energetic, right? And even though I'm not necessarily saying that Miles will have a, a thumping driving beat, but Miles is energetic, even in a um, slower tempo, Miles. So um, I love listening to music. Uh, I'm going to refer to something that you mentioned. When I was flying back and forth to China, and those were 12-hour flights, that's when I wrote my book, Finding Samuel Lowe, after the documentary. And while on those 12-hour flights, I would listen to Chinese zither music. And I kind of figure that probably maybe when I was in my mother's uterus, she must have been playing it to mellow me out because that gets me sort of onto a plane where I just immediately chill and I start becoming, excuse me, very reflexive. So different kinds of music appeal to me different ways. And when I think about my dad, it's Calypso or classical music, lots of Beethoven, Vivaldi, those are actually um, composers who I grew up listening to in Harlem because my father felt that this was important music for us to know. It's funny how those lessons come back and then you end up enjoying them as as we get a little older. Yeah, me too. So, Paula, tell me, what's your morning routine? It depends on the definition of morning. And I'm laughing because uh, I have always been an early riser. Um, the latest I usually sleep is until 5 a.m. And usually by 5.30, um, this has been going on for the past 20-something years, my husband and I are usually sitting in the hot tub, he with a cup of uh, coffee and Kahlua, and I'm drinking coffee and Baileys. Uh, We watch uh, the sky. Uh, My husband knows constellations brother from New Orleans. He knows constellations. Uh, We did his um, heritage and learned that he hails from a tribe in present day Liberia, excuse me, where uh, the people were called the navigators of West Africa. And so they would read the stars to navigate ships across the Atlantic. So my husband learned how to read stars from his father, who learned it from his father. But we never knew that it was that it went all the way back to then. So we sit in the morning, we watch stars and planets, we watch the sunrise, and importantly, and I say this um, probably as a tip to a long marriage, it's we start our day every day with a check-in. 
just muses, things that we're thinking about, plans for the day, things we meant to talk about before. And frequently we sit in silence because silence is a wonderful thing to enjoy too. Wow, there's a lot there. Thank you. <laughs> I, I think of myself as someone who has a good sense of direction, but I can't, I can't read stars. So I know east, west, north, south, but uh, after that, um, I'm, I'm, I might be lost. But that, that was beautiful. Thank you for that. How about your favorite weekend breakfast? Wow, my favorite, my favorite weekend breakfast would be I would say ackee and saltfish, plantains, fried dumplings, and maybe some sorrel. Now, you probably know that's a Jamaican breakfast, right? I, I, I had that breakfast for the first time, probably with my father cooking it. But truly, what I eat on a daily basis for breakfast is dinner. I grew up eating leftover dinner for breakfast. My mother would heat up whatever was left over. And that's more of a Chinese practice. If you go to China, there's no bacon and eggs and biscuits and waffles, and they don't eat food like that. It is largely what we would call here dim sum. In my family in China, um, they are Hakka, and they come from Guangdong province. And what we call dim sum, they call yum cha, which is drink tea. It's a tea meal. Right. So rice, meat, vegetables. That's mostly what I eat for breakfast. I'm not a big fan of omelets and pancakes and waffles and things like that. Not that I don't eat them, but I shy away from them. Just this weekend, my husband and I took our grandson to Paradise Cove Cafe in Malibu on the beach. You know it. I'm sure you know it. And while they had breakfast food, I had a tuna milk. Um, I don't especially like, I don't like bacon and eggs and food like that. I, it isn't anything that I grew up eating as a, as a practice. So I don't know. It's kind of funny because I certainly am African-American. But as you well know, there's different variations of African-American. We don't all come from the same place and we don't all eat the same food. So my breakfast is usually dinner. I got you. You know, I found a great uh, sorrel spot uh, last week and uh, brought some home. But my wife and I are talking about trying to make our own. Um, I love sorrel. Yeah. It's easy to make and it's really good. I might need your recipe. Okay. Best live musical performance you've ever seen. Best ever. Oh, Lord. It could be a toss up, but I'm going to go with Prince. And I'm going to go with Prince because I believe it was 2011. Prince had his 21 Nights tour, which was held at the Forum here in L.A. And I was working with him at the time. So I went to 18 of the 21 Nights concerts. And being in the green room with Prince, Maceo Parker, it was amazing. And being up close and personal was fascinating. And then... The live concert afterwards at Prince's house. The concert would end maybe around 1.32 a.m. and we'd head over to his house and he and his entire band would perform again until around 7 or 8 a.m. So those were magical. I'd have to say Prince. And, you know, you, you have to have a, a resume that's kind of ridiculous to leave the fact that you worked with Prince on it off of it. 
<laughs> that would be the first thing that I would say to anybody that I meet. I work with Prince, but you don't even have that on your resume. But oh my God, that must have been incredible. It was incredible. And Brad, what I will tell you is that you will never see a resume from me that is more than one page. I don't like to read any more than one page about anybody. And when you were introducing me, I was afraid. I was like, oh, please don't let him read the whole thing. <laughs> I have what I call a short bio, which is about a paragraph and a half. And then I have the long bio, which is a page with a lot of spacing. I'd rather just kind of give what people would consider highlights. But yeah, no, I worked with Prince and it was magical. It was. And when I first met him a week later, he he not knowing that this was going to happen, but he sent his um, lead backup singer into the audience to grab me and take me on stage at Madison Square Garden. 21,000 people. I couldn't hear what Prince was saying to me because the music was so loud. But after he spun, I realized I was supposed to dance with him. He started doing the bump and I'm a girl from Harlem because I was like, I can't stand here and be chumped. So I did the bump back. I was bumping with Prince. And the next person who got dragged on stage was Kim Kardashian. You wow. might remember that. That's set. legendary. Yeah. Going like this. And he kicked her off the stage. Yeah, no, I didn't get kicked off the stage. He, I was, I was, I was um, shocked, but thrilled and elated. But, you know, I had to go back to my Harlem girl days. I was like, nah, yeah, you can't, you ain't going to go. No, no you can't go out like that. You're not well, you know, the bump, man, it, I, I'm right there. At least I know I could have done the bump. You know, I, I don't know about the spinning and everything else Prince might have done, but the bump I could have pulled off. <laughs> I can go that far. Yeah, yeah. All right, last couple of these. So just finish this sentence for me, if you would. I have little patience for. Cruelty. Okay. I don't like seeing it, and I don't handle it being directed to me, but I don't like seeing it in my presence, and I am I am hardly likely to stay quiet when I see it going on. I just don't tolerate it. And I get that. All right. Last one. Who past or present would you most like to host at an intimate dinner party? My parents. Knowing what I know now, I would love to sit with them when they had their full faculties and just have conversations about where they wanted us, meaning my brothers and I, where they wanted us to end up and the kinds of decisions they made and what led them to those decisions. I think my parents were quite fantastic. I don't know that they thought of themselves as such, but they were uprooted. They they left home to go to another nation to try to make a way. And I think they did very successfully. There were a lot of pits of pitfalls and conflicts along the way for sure, but I would love to be able to have an intimate dinner with both of my parents, hoping, of course, that their past hostilities would be minimized and they'd be, yeah. they'd be willing and able to have a conversation. That's beautiful. I, I'm going to come back to your folks because uh, obviously that's a, you know, a, a major part of the Finding Samuel Lowe story, but also the journey. So I'm going to, I will come back to that. So let's jump in. First of all, how, how you doing? How are you? You know, my brother, I will say that in this day and time, with what's swirling out there in the world around us, all things considered, I'm actually doing very well. It's very interesting, this time that we're in, and we keep thinking this time is going to transition to another time. 
But every time we think, at least for me, that we're getting to a point where, okay, this will simmer down, it starts bubbling and boiling and churning again. So given all of that, my family's healthy, we're, we're good, and my friends are still my friends, and that's about as wonderful a situation that I could ask for. So I'm I'm good. Great. Good to hear that. Um, you know, on the subject, Paula, of how crazy the world has been seemingly these last few years, maybe it's always been a little crazy, but uh, it seems to have gotten a little nuttier. Um, and you've spent a good deal of your career around the news business. I'm curious what impact the term fake news has on news organizations and, uh, you know, whose goal I would like to think is delivering facts to the public. Has that job gotten to be more difficult? Yes, I think it's gotten very blurred. I will tell you, Brad, that it was decades ago when I worked at 30 Rock at NBC, where I saw what was called back then turnstile journalism, meaning that um, an individual one day could be, for example, the White House spokesperson at the Pentagon. And the next week is a correspondent on NBC News. I didn't understand how this could happen. And when I, you know, and I questioned it, like, how can this happen? How can you take someone who has been in a position that calls for bias and then the next week put that person in a position as a journalist, which calls for lack of bias, unbiased, non-biased, And I was concerned back then that we as journalists would muddy the picture for the public, right? We would muddy the picture just because someone sits on a set, has a microphone in front of him or her, is holding script pages and has, you know, an over-the-shoulder box does not mean that person's a journalist. But we started creating programs that looked like a newscast, but were not newscasts. And so what we have today, I think, unfortunately, as it has evolved, we have had and still have as the largest cheerleader of that fake news voice, the former president, right? And he who benefited from the bad behavior of journalists, he benefited from that to become president, meaning people knew him as the guy, the wealthy real estate magnate, the host of The Apprentice, and then he decides he's going to run for president, right? Now, up until that time, he was somewhat of a media darling, meaning that he made the circuit, you know, the the high-profile entertainment circuits in New York City and elsewhere. And so journalists took him as, you know, the Donald. Hey, how you doing? It was that, right? And when he declared his intention to run for president, they continued to treat him like that. I watched, because in those days I was not a working journalist. At that point, I had transitioned out of being the news director at NBC4 in New York, and I was a president general manager of NBC4 in Los Angeles. So I had become the president of the station as opposed to the person who was the the journalism arbiter for that news department, that station. I was so distraught. I was so distraught when I saw how he was getting a pass over and over and over. And even when 
Billy Bush interviewed him. Billy Bush is not a journalist. Okay, so let's establish that. But Billy Bush talking with him, he, the former president, says, grab him by the And it was a bit of a, just a little dust up. It wasn't, this dude is a presidential candidate. It didn't turn into what it would turn into today, right? So it was like, oh, oh. And it wasn't until that former president started telling the crowds to turn on the journalists present. It wasn't until that happened that as a mass journalist and journalism departments decided we're going to take this guy on. That's when you saw it happen. And by then it was too late. So when he labels things and when other people label things as fake news, what I would say is that in some regard, journalists themselves created this slippery slope, right? And the former president and his cronies have taken full advantage of the lack of credibility that much of the public has today for journalists. If we think back to the days when people, Walter Cronkite, John Chancellor, you know, Huntley Brinkley, and Walter Cronkite was somewhat affectionately called Uncle Walter. Who on earth would call any of the journalists sitting behind a desk today uncle anything except maybe their own nieces and nephews? Nobody thinks of them as overflowing with credibility. And now I'm going to take on the Brian Williams piece. This thing that is happening right now, Brian Williams was at CBS News, WCBS in New York, when Andy Lack, the president of NBC, saw him, plucked him from the five o'clock newscast and brought him over to NBC to be the heir apparent to Tom Brokaw. Those of us who were journalists were outraged and stunned. Why? Because Brian Williams couldn't hold a candle to the experience and credibility that Tom Brokaw had, right? But Brian Williams gets brought in, and now, of course, Andy is grooming him to replace Tom. And Brian has been talk, had been talking for years about being in a helicopter that crashed while covering the Gulf War. And they complained to NBC. And you know what finally did him in? It was the veterans, Tom Brokaw's greatest generation. Brokaw wrote a book about the greatest generation and did news specials about the greatest generation. Those veterans who served in the wars outed Brian Williams. They were like, nope, nope, nope. You were not there. You were not in a helicopter. You did not crash. Why are you lying? NBC couldn't get away from it anymore. And Andy Lack was no longer with the company. Comcast had owned the company by then, and they brought Andy Lack back to do what? To investigate Brian Williams' claims. Wait, you brought back the guy who brought him in? I was sitting there going, it's like, what planet am I on? So they brought him back. The result was, well, they'd signed Brian to a two-figure in the millions contract right before all this fell apart. They put him over at MSNBC. And what we saw was Lester Holt ascended to the anchor for NBC Nightly News once they pulled Brian Williams off. I have no inside knowledge about this, but I sat waiting for Andy Lack to look at ratings or find a reason to take Lester Holt off that desk and put Brian Williams back. It didn't happen, thank God. 
But what we just saw was Brian Williams, whose contract is up in January. The stories say they were going to reduce his compensation, probably because he's not on the big show on NBC anymore that makes the big money. He was overdoing the 11th hour on MSNBC. And what the what I read said that they were going to reduce his money and he's leaving. So he's going to go do something else. And I put on my Facebook post, hmm, let's see if Nora O'Donnell over at CBS survives. And let's see if it's not Brian Williams who slips into the nightly newscast over on CBS. That part I make up. But everything else I said, I did not make up. So when we talk about fake news, when news is based on personality, which is what we largely have reduced it to, America's anchorman, right? America's anchorman. Like, what is that? What, what is that? The personification of what? Credibility? How about just telling people the facts and when it's analysis, say it's analysis, right? But I fear, I fear that what we as journalists have done is we have muddied the picture for the public. And that's why that phrase, fake news, has taken a hold. Well, Paula, yeah, and, and that moving of the pieces behind the scenes over the years, what you saw coming is is a really, really cool insight into, uh, you know, how we got where we are. But I also, I want to sidestep over to social media because, you know, as we see now, you know, you see it online, they believe it, right? It, they take it as fact, yet there's no, you know, fact-checking organization that checks uh, social media posts, but some folks still take that stuff literally. So, how do you how do you see that? Is the genie out of the bottle with social media? Is are we just done for because we can't control that? There's just no way, and it's too big and it's too powerful. Yes, <laughs> by that I mean that it's a different medium and a different format. But that's like trying to control people's phone calls from back in the day. That's like trying to control postcards and letters. You can't you can't do it. So what we have done is we've we've put the tools and the means in the hands of the general public. They can say what they want. They can write what they want. They can post what they want to a certain extent. And please, Brad, let's remember that um, in our country, we do have governmental oversight over some aspects of communications. The FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, was created decades ago in order to control the public airwaves, right? So by the public airwaves, it means anything that can go terrestrial on Earth from from antenna to antenna, right? But things that go up on satellite and things that go through coaxial cable are not controlled by the FCC. So what we have, we have a circumstance where certain kinds of media and communications come under government scrutiny, right, and regulation. And then there's a whole world that is that is not and cannot be. So I find it really interesting to see that, um, you know, the creators, the leaders of Facebook, et cetera, are being called to testify in Congress to find out what means of censorship are, is in place when, if you look at the responsibility of the FCC, well, they're not holding the hearings because it doesn't fall under FCC's jurisdiction. It could fall under the government's jurisdiction, but that would mean that the government is stepping into 
new territory, going into areas to oversee, I'll put in quotes, police where they've not been before. So does it belong with the with the government? Does it belong with the people? Is it just, you know, commercial? Is it commerce? These are things that, questions that were not even wrestled with when these social media were created. So now, as you said, Jeannie's already out of the bottle. There's no stuffing it back in. The question is, can it be limited in any way? And for those people who believe that this country truly is a democracy, it's like, well, should it be controlled in any way? Uh, That's a question I don't have the answer to. So before we change topics, just quickly, where do you get your news? Oh, sure. I watch, read, listen to a variety of sources. So I certainly do watch. I watch CNN, MSNBC. I try to catch a bit of Fox, but I always feel like I'm going to vomit. So I just try to watch enough of it so I can get a sense of, you know, where they're where they're going. Um, I read Atlantic, Mother Jones, New York Times, LA Times. I read the Daily Mail, the Jamaican Gleaner, the Jamaican Observer. I read a variety. I read the South China Morning Post. I read a variety of publications. I watch BBC. I watch um, a Taiwanese newscast that comes on daily factoring in that the perspective of Taiwan is going to be very anti-mainland China. So I I consume a lot of news. I find it difficult, though, let me say it this way. During the past presidential administration, I would almost run and hide and bury my head figuratively when a newscast was coming on because I couldn't stand to hear his voice. Right? I, I, I just, at points, struggled because I really wanted to live somewhere else. And my husband, who's like, I said, is like the brother from New Orleans, was like, I'm not going anywhere. My parent, my family's been in this country since the 1800s when we're not. And I was like, right. And truly, as a child of Caribbean parents, I think most children of Caribbean parents know something about the parents' homeland. Right. And many of those places offer dual citizenship. And many of us first-generation U.S. citizens are raised to believe that it is possible for us to go to our parents' homeland. So I always grew up believing, well, I may go to Jamaica, right? Well, easier said than done, although my brothers and I have our citizenship and our passports from Jamaica. But the point of this is that running from one place to another is probably not the answer. But in my head, in my heart, I wanted to run. And because I could not reconcile the degree of hatred and racism that I was feeling in that administration. And of course, which I still feel now because they didn't go anywhere. They're just not sitting in the Oval Office, but they didn't go. 
Yeah, I, I can't think of a time in my lifetime where I think where things were more unsettling and that uh, there were more conversations about people want thinking seriously, thinking about leaving the country um, and going through a similar thought process as you. And, um, you know, uh, so we're, we're still kind of in the midst of that. But uh, on a on a different subject here, Mayor Garcetti, Eric Garcetti, appointed you to the L.A. Police Commission, as I mentioned, to fund the police has proven to be a divisive slogan, not making any judgment about whether it's right or wrong or smart or not, but it has certainly been a divisive subject. With someone who's been close to law enforcement like yourself, Paula, is there anybody out there that's saying something that you agree with, that has the right voice here? And it, it just seems like such a, the, the argument is all over the place and, and it's hard to make sense of knowing exactly you know, who to align yourself with on, on this. And, and I'll just add, though, at the same time, all of my friends have had that conversation with their sons and daughters about getting pulled over. Yet the statistic that um, is most troubling to me, and, and of course, it's not excusing any police violence, but the most likely cause of death for black men until they are 45 is homicide. And unfortunately, at the hands of another black man. So we've got some issues, but tackle any part of that. So first, let me give you a little, a, a slight amount of background as to how I became a police commissioner. One of my friends who was heading the transition team for the mayor recommended me for a commission role on a variety. There's scores of commissions for the city of Los Angeles. And he recommended that the mayor talk to me about a commission role. While I was in his office, he and I were meeting alone. I began to talk to him about when I was news director in New York and the relationship and the conflicts that we'd had in New York City. Um, this was during the time of Abner Luima. I mean, you name it. All of that was going on. And he said to me, I'd like for you to serve on the police commission. And if I had not already been sitting, I probably would have fallen. I said, Mr. Mayor, are you sure? And he said, yes. And I said, Mr. Mayor, have you vetted me well enough to know? He said, yes, yes, of course. Now, Brad, I was in previous lives. Earlier in my life, I was, as a teenager, hanging around the Black Panther office. Immediately upon graduating from college, I joined the Nation of Islam. I have been very much on the side of let's examine, re-examine this so-called establishment. I've always been in that mindset. My thesis in college, I wrote about Marcus Garvey and W.E.B. Du Bois standing in Jamaica with my grand with my father. He was outraged that he said I was you're using your Vassar education to study this man? I said, Daddy, he's a national hero of Jamaica. Oh, he created all kinds of whatever in the United States because my father was old school until he went to Jamaica with me and he heard and saw people of the variety of races in Jamaica referring to Marcus Garvey as a great man, right? So back to the mayor. He asked me to take a role as police commissioner. And I asked him twice, are you sure, Mr. Mayor? And twice, yes. So... I said, yes. When I got home, I said to my husband, you're not going to believe. I told my husband, black man from New Orleans. And he looked at me and said, you did what? I accepted. He just said, okay. The next morning, 
in a hot tub moment, remember coffee and Kahlua, coffee and Bailey's, my husband asked, Paula, do you think that you should have spoken to me before you accepted the role of police commissioner? I ain't a stupid woman, right? So I said, baby, you are absolutely right. I actually should have checked in with you. But I was so excited and elated that this man asked me to be a voice on the police commission so I could see myself as a voice of the disenfranchised, thinking of you, my husband, thinking of my brothers, thinking of my grandson, thinking of black men and women out there everywhere who get unfairly treated by many police. I said, I was just so heady with excitement. I said, yes. All right. Do I think that there should be a movement to defund the police? I did not join the police commission as a police supporter. I joined the police commission in my mind as a person who was going to rebuild, upend. So while sitting on the police commission, I asked for an analysis of all of the complaints, bias complaints filed against the LAPD for this for a particular year. I wanted a year long and no one had ever asked for that before. And I wanted to know by race and gender, who were the complainants and by race and gender, who were the objects of their complaints? I'll ask you, Brad, who do you think filed the largest number of bias complaints against the police department by race and gender? African-American men. Correct. Who do you think received the largest number of complaints as police officers by race and gender? White men. Completely wrong. Latino men. An overwhelming majority. When I say overwhelming, I don't remember the exact numbers, but let's say 60% were Hispanic male cops. Let's say 85% were African-American male complainants. After that percentage of Hispanic cops, the next largest number was in fact white men, and it was in the 20s. So what you had was a huge gap. And when I asked for these numbers, sitting in the hearing room for the police commission, every week there'd be citizens, lots of people of color, police officers, etc. And when I asked for this information, as I looked at the group, the faces of the African-American police officers was like, now, if I interpret it, these are going to be my words, but this was the look on their faces. Damn, she knows to ask for that, right? That was one. <laughs> the faces, the looks on the faces of the white cops and the Hispanic cops was like, what, what, oh, did, what, what? That's how I interpreted what I saw. And so in two weeks, when those, when that information was presented to me, so that's when I requested. Two weeks later, the information is presented at the police commission. And what I then launched into, after I asked the question, the president of the police commission, a white male, said out loud into the microphone. I don't even know why you want that information. The answer is obvious. I turned to him and said, is it? Because I operate on fact. I don't know the race and gender of the police officers, most often the subject of bias complaints. And I'd like to know that. He said, well, I just don't want this to be a waste of time. 
And I turned to him and said, so you will operate on your supposition and I will operate on facts as presented and then we'll figure out who's on the, on the best ground here. Well, when that information came back, I turned and looked at him. Not, not what you expected, huh? Was that the obvious? He was like, well, no, I'm surprised, right? What I'm getting at here was I then launched into the schools in Los Angeles are overwhelmingly, public schools in Los Angeles by almost 90% are Latinx. Much smaller number of Blacks, small number of whites, reasonable number of Asians. When there are gang fights in LAUSD at the schools, it's usually Latinx and Blacks. In the prisons in California, the prison population, usually when there are gang fights, it's Latinx and Blacks. When I looked at the last four classes coming into the police academy for Los Angeles, I would say 50% were Latinx and maybe two were Black. And I don't mean 2%, I mean two people. Black people were not joining the LAPD. So what I said to the gathering was, this suggests to me that a bias that has existed probably from childhood. Oh, I forgot to leave out the housing projects. There are housing projects in LA and frequently Blacks and Latinx people are not put in the same housing projects because they get targeted. So I said that if we, if we could leap to the conclusion that there is an inherent bias that happens at an early age that doesn't seem to be addressed to the point where it diminishes or disappears, the inherent bias of Latinx versus African-Americans and vice versa, I'll throw that in there. But what happens when those same people join the police department? Where, where does bias get addressed? At that point, there was a module at the academy that was just a few hours long on bias, on racial bias. And I said I wanted to use the results of that request for analysis to reexamine how police officers in LAPD are being trained and what are the refresher courses, right? So defund the police. I do not believe in defunding the police. As you said earlier, unfortunately, there's a lot of homicides still going on. Unfortunately, a significant number are Black-on-Black homicides. We can go into all kinds of reasons, societal reasons why, why that's happening, but we don't, I don't think we need to here. What I will say, however, is that people are still being killed and somebody has to be taken off the streets because of that. I say, give the police the work of policing, right? Give the other divisions, departments, their work. My daughter is a forensic psychiatrist here in Los Angeles. She used to work with the police department, not for them, but work side by side, Department of Mental Services, all that stuff. And on any given shift, when I was a police commissioner, on any given shift, we had two-person units in a daytime setting handling cases of police being called when it sounds like it's a mental issue. But many, 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 a majority of the confrontations that happen between police and citizens is mental health issues involved. The police are not trained for that. So until or unless we train them for that, they should not be sent out on those calls. 
So I don't say defund the police. I will say rework the budget. I will say look very closely at letting the police handle the police work and let health workers handle health work, because that's a large part of what we're seeing that goes wrong. And by the way, after I left the commission, they voted on, maybe two years, maybe three years later, they voted on something that I thought was much needed, which was there, there now is a distance between the police officer and the, I'll call it the, 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 the citizen who they've been called to deal with. There's now a distance right? Police are not expected to draw their weapons and shoot past, you know, a certain distance, meaning that I'm totally making up these numbers. But let's pretend that in the past, if someone was 50 feet away and the officer said, drop your weapon, drop your knife, and the person didn't, and the police drew the weapon and shot, it could still be within policy, right? Policy meaning legal inside of police department procedures. Now they've set a perimeter, right? You can't shoot somebody that far away holding a knife. If the person had a gun with a projectile, different story. But the things that to me seem to be common sense um, were addressed in this new policy that was put in place. And so I was glad to see that. But I'm also emphasizing that police should be given police work. I don't believe in defund the police. No. Thank you for breaking down those facts. And I and I can see the separation of uh, responsibilities there and, and how, you know, police find themselves in situations that policemen shouldn't be in, that someone a little more capable of dealing with people with mental illness uh, would be better in those situations. So, Paula, with, with the time that we have left, I want to talk about um, this documentary that you made. It, it was just a beautiful film. I watched it and uh, was, was really moved by your, your family's story. My mother's father was Hakka Chinese and her mother was African Jamaican. My father was African Jamaican. And you describe your mom as, as fierce and sad. And I thought that, uh, you know, by the end of the film, a uh, very emotional ending for you, you find your grandfather's village and uh, the, those words that were written outside of the village. Um, I thought that really just kind of, you know, just summed up your, your life in a way. But uh, just talk talk a little bit about the movie, about uh, how that's how it struck you emotionally. Touch on your mom just with the time that we have left. I, I do want to get into that a little bit with you. Sure. Well, my, my, um, the fact is, is that um, from Southern China, the immigrants to the United States from, from Chinese, almost all of them came from Southern China. Almost all of them came from Guangdong province. From the time of the gold rush to building the railroads, coming through the Pacific, coming through the Atlantic. So up until modern times, say the 70s, almost all Chinese came to this country from Southern China. Very tropical climate. So the extent to which it was similar to the Caribbean in temperature made it easier for them to identify that this is a place where they could go. Most of them went there because when the Africans were um, emancipated, when the enslaved Africans were emancipated, um, they refused to work on these plantations for pay. They were like, no, you beat us, you maimed us, you killed us, you raped us. We're not. So they brought in cheap labor from China and India. And that's how ultimately this wave of Chinese people started coming in. My, my grandfather did not come to work on a plantation. He arrived in 1905 at the age of 15 and went to work in a shop, right? Somebody from his village had a shop and he 
uh, came over. Um, really smart, did really well, and in no time they set him up in a shop of his own. Because he arrived when he was 15, he was very different from the other males who came, most of whom were already married and had families in, in China. My grandfather was so young, no marriage, no family, so he became a man in Jamaica and ultimately had two Jamaican women as his partners. I don't know if they knew about each other, but they were about 40 miles apart. So those days, horse and buggy, it's a day long trip. Um, and remember, this is in an era where many societies accepted that men could have as many families as they could afford. This happened in Africa, it happened throughout Asia, it even happened in Europe. It, it was pretty common. So my grandfather did well in Jamaica and he had two families. His family in China, um, concerned that he was not going to return, sent a Chinese woman for him to marry sight unseen. Um, up until then, the immigration laws prevented women from, from migrating. Chinese women and families could not come. They changed the laws. This woman came. She married my grandfather. That angered my grandmother, and she told him, you'll never see your daughter again. My mother was three years old. She had a very difficult life after that. Um, she immigrated to the United States when she was 26, and my, my mother looked completely Chinese. She didn't look mixed. She looked Chinese. And she got to the U.S. and went to find her cousins in Harlem, her black cousins in Harlem, who sponsored her. They were Jamaican. And my father was not letting her go. So he stowed away on a ship, got here, found her in Harlem. They got married and all of that unfolded. So the, the significance for me was that my mother had not seen her father since she was three years old. She was very sad and her mother did not raise her. Her mother didn't want her. She just didn't want her father to have her. So my mother grew up being very disconnected from her family and then told us as children, family is the most important thing in the world. Nothing can come between you and your family. And so for me, it was, well, if family's so important, Ma, where's, where's your family? We lived in Harlem. We're living with this woman who looks Chinese. People are going, wait, what is going on here? Who is that? Like what? And so my brothers and I became very, very conscious of race at an early age. She looked Chinese, had a Jamaican accent, and if you crossed her or bothered her children, my mother would, without question, pull a knife or a cleaver on you. My mother was a scorched earth woman. She was, the Hakka people are known as warriors. And on the Jamaican side, we descend from the Akan or Ashanti people of present day Ghana. So those are Ashanti warriors, Hakka warriors, Anybody who knows me knows that I have a short temper and all the above. So I found them. We shot a documentary. I wrote the book. And in fact, right now, my book is the basis for a limited series being developed by Amazon and Legendary. It will be shown in China and here in the United States. And I'm really excited. So that's what I've been working on. I'm working on a TV series about my life. That's fantastic. The the, the three words that were outside of the village, um, as you discovered them when you when you went to to China with your family members, and such warm scenes there with the, all of your Chinese relatives embracing your American relatives, big group, everybody hugging. But the words prosperity, family, and education, just kind of that's your life. That's my life. 
the the shock for my brothers and my two older brothers and me was that we, you know, our village was built, started, um, they started constructing our village in the 1700s. And the sign over the gate to the village says, you know, family, prosperity, education. And when our cousins and aunts and uncles translated to us that that's what it said, we were like dumbstruck because that's all my mother ever talked about. Um, my oldest brother went to Williams College and, and Harvard Business School. I went to Vassar and Syracuse University Graduate School. My older brother, the middle child, the one with the highest IQ, did not go to college. He got caught up in, in for a while in drugs and all, but reformed. And the point about this is that I learned years later, like three years ago from my daughter, as I mentioned, the forensic psychiatrist, she said, Ma, you know, grandma was bipolar. I said, what? And she said, now that I understand all this and I'm a professional, she said, grandma was bipolar. And my mother helped raise my daughter, right? And I truly, Brad, I couldn't breathe. I stopped breathing. I, I was like, and it wasn't because I was bothered, ashamed, or any of that. It was, oh my God, that explains so much. My daughter's statement opened it, it, it unlocked a mystery for me. Like, what? my mother was different, sure, but she was really different from other people's mothers, too. And I never understood, you know, the hawkishness that she had over us in making sure that we didn't get in trouble and that we didn't hang around with the wrong kids and that we didn't and that we did do this and this and this. She came to the United States and said, well, if the Carnegies can do it and the Rockefellers can do it, then by God, I can do it. And there was nobody around to tell us, no, that doesn't happen like that. Your mother's not right. My mother was insistent that we would be wealthy. She was insistent that that was what we were going to do. Or, or as she said, I'll pull your tongue out of your head. So we just kept driving and driving and driving to that point. And to this day, I will tell you that now that I understand, I credit my mother's having bipolar disorder for us having the kind of success we had because she didn't get distracted. Nothing else mattered to her. No men, no money, no friends, no anything. Her children were her sole focus. And because she wrote us the way she did, we ended up fulfilling, I think, some of her expectations. I would say. And, uh, you know, I'm going to want to close on something. And I and I think I picked this up in something that you said, maybe in one of the lectures. But the idea that as we move around the globe um, or the country, for that matter, we leave homelands, culture, people while venturing to new into new spaces, people, cult and culture and customs. But and we leave behind, you know, bits of ourselves along the way. And we also take with us what we hold on to. And. As I was thinking about that, Paul, and thinking about your story, there's a melancholy in that for me. And uh, I don't the, the lyrics to Stevie Wonder's song lately popped in my head with the lyrics go with no vivid reason here to find. And as I thought about it a little bit more, it's not having traced my family roots. You know, my mom was Italian. My dad was black. I haven't been to the part of Georgia that his family came from, and I don't know where in Africa his family is from. I have not been to the part of Italy where my mom is from. And there's just these bits and pieces that you do not know. Obviously, your mom with bipolar condition, that's different. But there were some customs. There were some ways that, you know, she brought with her from faraway lands that became part of your upbringing that led to 
a Paula Madison that that we've you know had the enjoyment of knowing. So I don't know where that leaves you, but that was the thought that I was left with uh, from the film. It just it left me feeling those that longing to uh, to reconnect with family. Well, Brad, I want to tell you that um, that's the highest honor that you could pay to me by telling me that it evoked those feelings in you because that's what I had hoped for. I hoped that people would read that book see the film and understand that many of us cannot be put into one bucket, right? We are the culmination of many cultures, societies, practices that went before us. And as we have children and they have children, it will continue and continue. I think that listening to you, I would hope that you would take the opportunity to try to find more of your heritage. Because as I said, the mysteries of why does my husband, a boy from, you know, a little boy who grew up in New Orleans, a black boy growing up in New Orleans, why do you know how to read constellations? Why do you know that? I don't know. My dad taught me. Well, how did he know? His dad taught him. And then we we did his DNA with AfricanAncestry.com. I don't know if, if you um, know about that, but it's, a, it's an amazing Black-owned, largest collection of African DNA of all companies, right? So we went to them, and when they explained my husband's heritage, it was like, it was like me finding out that my mother had bipolar disorder. It was like, well, that makes sense, right? Going to my family's village construction started in the 1700s and seeing those words, it was like, my mother didn't even grow up with her father. And yet that's what she pushed on us. So there's all kinds of things in our DNA that we might wonder about. But if we take a moment and find out where we came from and it helps us know where we're going, it also helps explain to us who we are and why we are. It helps us explain to our children and our grandchildren who they are and why they are. So the legacy of family is the most important legacy any of us can have. It's not money. It's not fame. It's not reputation. It's none of that. It's family. And I pray you have the opportunity to meet those relatives who you don't know, it's very difficult to do what Alex Haley did, right? To find your village in Africa. It's not impossible, but it's difficult. But I can't imagine it's, it's impossible to find the village in Italy or the city in Italy. That should be doable, um, particularly today with the internet, because I found my grandfather's descendants, it literally, literally took two weeks after 90 plus years of separation. They didn't know my mother existed. She didn't know they existed. My mother had passed by then. But the wonders of modern technology can get you there in no time. Well, Paula, I have to thank you for that motivation and the inspiration that I got from uh, Finding Samuel Lowe. Beautiful, beautiful film. And uh, just your career. I mean, just a stellar career. Um, really look up to you. And I uh, just want to thank you for uh, for taking the time today and, and sitting with me on Corner Table Talk. Thank you. Thank you. And I want to thank Ambassador Shabazz for introducing us. I don't know if you remember that I met you first at Manemsha, the restaurant you had back in the day here. And I was like, Manemsha, uh, what's that from? And you, and you said, it's Martha's Vineyard. 
And I now, my family owns a home on Martha's Vineyard. We, we were so enraptured. I was so enraptured by your description of what it was and what it meant that I was like, let me go check this place out. <laughs> so you have affected my family in a massive way. So I want to thank you and I will always honor our friendship. I so appreciate that. And I, and I hope to maybe have a lobster roll and lemonade with you and Manemsha one of these days watching the sun go down. Okay. All right. See you soon. Thank you, Paula. So moving over here with my dear friend, Ambassador Shabazz and how we move was happening, Ambassador. Wow. That was absolutely um, deep, clear, clarifying. She's a tall journeyed sister, Paula Madison, which was is indicative of what you just heard, what you listened to, what the audience will digest with her. It's she's she's quiet when she enters a room, but you can feel the the layers of thought and presence and resonance all the time. And very seldom do people get to hear the dimensions of all of her thoughts unless it's specific unless it unless it's related to the topics at hand and being able to hear her for an hour um share with you and this audience who's going to be highly enlightened is characteristic of the relationship she and I have very close i would say that she is hands down one of the um closest sister friends that i have when it, especially when it comes to open direct conversations about anything perspective social conditions ourselves our parents our lineage our children um she doesn't mince words um they're very clear and direct uh she doesn't take time to assess you or stop you from you being you in the process of the discussion or discovery whether you get to have had a part in her life professionally and it would be interesting to have the conversations with those people who are impacted by her but personally um she's an absolutely loyal friend i've gotten to meet you know 12 of her sister friends when they've known each other since elementary school or college and they're just um she's just amazing to me and i'm so glad that you got a chance to know her outside of the professional realm but just conversationally and for more and more people this generation to realize the dignity um and the lifeline of so many women like her who carry a story and are here to share the story yeah i, I want to thank you for uh i mean she brought it up uh towards the end of our conversation but uh, you you brought her into uh the restaurant we had in Venice Manemsha many years ago and and that was where she and i met and uh so you were kind enough to arrange for her to uh to join us today and you know when you look at someone's career that spans the industries that hers does and you see how she has had simultaneously she has had multiple roles yes. and then you start to hear how this person thinks and unpacks issues yes. and what insight man she she really is dynamic but and uh, I'm just very impressed. All day, it's really because her her integrity compass is on 100, right? So that she is not trying to process debris at any level. It's always the quest for the authentic outcome. It's just that clean, that simple. It's difficult for others because not everybody may be ready for that process. But it's where she functions. And so when you call up or engage and you want to know something, be ready 
because she's going to share it the way you she better have your notepad yeah <laughs> well yeah because certainly words of wisdom that embarks upon what you said that makes you consider the same thing for yourself it's the kind of friendship she and i were able to bring to real fruition when we were both in los angeles together because coming from new york where you can live your dimensional self without the same caste system being the determining factor or the typecasting being the determining factor is when you find that person with whom you can share those characteristics, you know, um, and that all of the things that we are in our composite self, as she said towards the end, which is one of the conversations she and I would always have, that we're very comfortably, proudly representative of that which we would be naturally assigned to. But then you realize there's dimensions that also have value, that also have significance, and they probably reign within oneself in ways that we don't know yet, right? But it doesn't make it absent. It just means we have to uncover the definition or the journey of, of what that is. But we're always exactly how we identify. And then there's more. You know, yeah. I brought her to Louisville, yeah. Kentucky a few years back. She and a number of a panel that I, I titled Am I as I am assigned or as I proclaim? You know, the, the census can determine for us where we fit. And based on what's going on in your house on, on Friday, Saturday, or Sunday, your composite may have different volume or channels, significances. So it's just really, really, really proud. I loved when you had asked her who would she have dinner with. I got emotional about that because I know it is be, the reflection, it's the hindsight for her to have ha be able to sit down and have dinner with her parents knowing what she knows now. And I guarantee... Right that her parents on both sides, the lineages on, on all sides, are really proud of the outcome of their children. And not just the success in terms of business, but the character and their dedication to family, to one another, the accountability to one another. Because <laughs> even though she's the baby of her family, she's quite matriarchal, you know? You get that, yeah, you get that. And you know, when you, if you, See the documentary uh, Finding Samuel Lowe, I think towards the end, they're all on Martha's Vineyard. And, um, you know, it's just so warm to see. I mean, first of all, it's a compound. I mean, yeah, the place looks like, uh, you know, 30 or 40 people could stay there. No, that's how they roll. Um, but, you know, just, yeah, just the way the family communes. And obviously, Paula kind of is, is right in the center of all that. So, a really, really special guest today. Well, you know, Thank she you. offers a metronome of, uh, that we all need. It doesn't mean that anybody's life was easy. She talked about what her parents endured and went through as immigrants and the discoveries and, and, and what they intended for their children. And none of those journeys are easy for any of our parents or grandparents as they navigate for our well-being. But being able to have the compounds or the family expectations or being able to call one another, the family meetings, the gathering spaces, it's one of the characteristics that I think we all should resume, you know, um, like the corner table, right? Your, your father was similar in making sure that, that while we may not have been Johnson's, you could, my mother could look into that window at four o'clock, even though before the store opened. And if he sees our face, he was opening the door. And then I, as a teenager, also got to go in there, sit down. All the lights weren't on yet. The all the table, the cloths weren't on the table, but it was still a gathering space, 
where she could touch down, where we could touch down. And I think we need to bring that kind of table back, that space back. And uh, when I think of Paula Madison, just as my sister and friend, um, she is really a a straight shooter, as compassionate as she is um, definitive. So maybe some people may not even know how her heart sings or smiles or what brings her joy because they're usually reaching her to access her mindset on something, her response to something. Even that comes from the well of her heart. Truth comes from her heart, not just her intellect. The delivery may seem or feel like one thing, but her joy, her humor, her wit, her giggle, um, the way she loves her family and her grandson. Don't start that conversation, right? Because she has, she has one and he is everything, but she's just as definitive with him. There's their expectations. She reminds me while on the younger side of that, uh, you know, traditional West Indian or Caribbean grandmother, well, she's younger than that. She's that definitive. And I think about people, other Caribbean women um, that have come to the United States that sometimes people don't even realize a Caribbean, you know, so Susan Taylor, Caribbean, first generation, just like Paula Madison, um, as is Shirley Chisholm or Sheila Jackson Lee, the congresswoman from Dallas, um, Donna Christensen, another one, and, and it goes on, Garvey, Celia Cruz. So we can move from the British side of the Caribbean to the Latin side. And the insistence and the collective um, focus, especially those that came under that Garvey umbrella, it was not defined by the colonial designation of each respective island in the Caribbean. It was really about the collective freedoms that we were entitled to. And at the time that her parents were coming to Harlem, there was still the presence of, of what was Garvey. And I grew up in that region and the likes of a Celia Cruz, and others um, were there. Um, I know. I know you. At some point, you were in the Caribbean as a child on your mother's side, right? Didn't she travel there at some point? Oh yeah, she uh, was living in Nassau. And, in the Bahamas. Yeah, in Nassau. Yeah. I remember when I was mm-hmm. younger, that had come up, and I was really excited about what maybe that would have born if in and if you were going to start spending time in the Bahamas, maybe I'd come along. You know? <laughs> you know. But you know, I am I'm also of the descendancy. And when I think about the journey, the expectation, we don't even think about what black immigration is like to the United States. Usually we here think that the immigrant is someone else, whether you're African national, Caribbean, South Pacific, um, in terms of people of color even Europeans of, of color, the off-white, you know, that just came here and had to find out how to balance their, their circulation in this place. And then how many achievers um, were born of that. There's a sister um, in New Jersey. I've, so I, I've been on a plane every other day in the past, I guess, five days. And I was picked up from one location when I landed and went straight to a meal. And it was a family-style Dominican restaurant by a woman named Maria Concepcion. She's a mother of three. She came here in the early 90s. And she has seven restaurants in New Jersey. And each one of her restaurants (laughs) is named after a city in the Dominican Republic. And 
when I went in, it was just really family style. So while the food was magnificent, the hospitality, the fellowship, the engagement, and then learning as she sat down and her sons came in and, and her cousins were the ones who took me and three generations at the table, that she built these and raised her children simultaneously. It was holding on to a piece of home. What her currency was, was the culture. It's what enabled her children to maintain their binationalism, but all of them are involved with the business. All of them collectively, she is part of the one son said that he would come in after school and have his like, you know, snack between, you know, school and dinner there. And I remember seeing you at the cellar. At what would, what, how old would that be? 14, 15? Bussin? 16. 16. You know, it's just, it warmed me. Now, her children are adult people now. She has grandchildren. And while the menu was superb and family style, I was just moved by the generational matriarchal insistence of continuum of immigrants of color mm-hmm. and what they insist that their children are prepared for. And what, what was the name of, uh, I know you, sh- you said she had seven, she had but seven. what was well, the, the name of the place The one I went to was called El, which is the for people who don't speak Spanish. Mm-hmm. Um, Merenguito. Merenguito is spelled M-E-R-E-N-G-U-I-T-O restaurant. And it's in Belleville, New Jersey, which is kind of like just outside of Newark. And she, they can be found on um, Facebook under the, each respective restaurant's name. She doesn't have a website. This is the areas and ways that people who may be in your listening audience can assist people mm-hmm. who have small businesses. You know, this word of mouth. What I also loved is that most of her employees in all of her restaurants are high school graduates from the Newark public school system. She incorporates the experience of business and hospitality with the teens and young adults in and around each respective zip code of the restaurants. All right. Well, how we move with Ambassador Shabazz. I know next time I'm flying into Newark Airport, <laughs> I might just have to take a little Uber, yeah, check really out a little Dominican. I, you let me know, and one of her kids will come and get you. That's how I got to the better. restaurant, not by Uber, right. by a relative. <laughs> Good to know. Ambassador Shabazz, how we move. Good seeing you. And you. Corner Table Talk is hosted by Brad Johnson, produced by Brad and Linda Ailes Johnson. Theme music, Life Goes On by Bryce Vine. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the Corner Table Talk podcast wherever you get your podcast. Follow, subscribe, rate, and leave a comment. Corner Table Talk is a mean old lion media production.